Hey everybody, I'm Mike Yeager, and I want to thank you for checking us out. Welcome to Vessel. We're so excited to get things rolling here in Meadows Place. It has been a blast so far. If you're in the Meadows or nearby in Southwest Houston or Fort Bend County, Stafford, we would love to meet you. Or if you know anyone in the area searching for a Christian community that is Jesus-centered, justice-minded, and a safe and inclusive place for all people. We are gathering regularly through the fall during this initial planting season and invite you to join us on this shared journey of healing and hope. Here's the message from this weekend, and we pray it is a blessing to you. So, uh, so some of you all know, uh, Lauren and I were away last weekend. On the Thursday before last, I turned 40, and I was so terrified by the notion that there would be some elaborate fuss made about it that I literally had to leave the country. Uh, and then, of course, I, I quickly became, uh, I, I belatedly realized that maybe it would have been okay if there had been more of a fuss. So the lesson really is that there's just no pleasing me whatsoever. Uh, but we had an incredible time in, in Mexico City. I'll spare you the slideshow. That's what Instagram's for. Uh, it's a beautiful city, a, 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 an incredibly hospitable people, and a cultural historical landscape that, it, that is more than I ever really knew, just fascinating and dense and complicated and tragic and defiant and yet always hopeful. And it exceeded expectations in, in every way. So the, the one unfortunate dimension, uh, though not a, entirely surprising, was my, I, I hesitate to even use the word, command of the Spanish language. Um, I tried my best, but, but four days of practice was clear evidence that I have retained a faint to, at best, fumbling grasp on the language that I learned for several years of, of public schooling, right? Uh, and, and this made for a number of interesting misunderstandings, but, but only one of which made me feel truly deep embarrassment and shame. So that's the one I'm going to share with you. Um, so what happened was this. So we're making our way through the uh, Museo de Arte Nacional, the, the, the National Art Museum. And we happen upon a small room, outside of which is this this lengthy explanation on the nature of this room written in Spanish. And, and I pull out my phone, and, and Google is translating it in real time, which is just wild, right? And it, and it gives us the details. And the sign tells us that this is an interactive uh, setting celebrating the, the work of an esteemed Ecuadorian landscape artist, okay? And it gives us some instructions. Please move all the items that you see inside the room as you will in, or, in order to create a space of, of peace and playfulness. And the sign instructed us to do all of that in silence, right? So Lauren and I walk into the room, we're ready to go. And immediately as we turn the corner, these two young museum attendants, they start to, to speak, presumably in, in retrospect, to uh, provide the same invitation that was listed Outside, but, but as a, I had not anticipated their presence in the room, I wasn't able to really key in right away with what they were saying, and I wasn't able to summon the language in the moment to say, oh, no, I'm so sorry, you startled me. Thank you for the information about the room. I, I read a bit outside. Was I, did I read correctly? Are we invited to participate in this exhibit in, in silence? Uh, and what came out instead was silencio, question mark, not great as an attempt. I really could have done better. Made worse when it becomes immediately clear 
from their confused and perhaps mildly irritated faces that these two young women did not hear the rising question mark in my voice and instead heard something closer to silencio, as though this clueless gringo was commanding them to be quiet, the world traveler that I am. So a moment's awkwardness, lo siento, I'm so sorry, but there's not much more that I can offer as they're you know, now attending to, to other guests, and, and I just have to take the L, as they say. Um, but I tell you that story because it reminded me of something that had always bothered me to no end during my entire foreign language education. Your experience may have differed, right? But, but in my experience, we were taught vocabulary, the words and what they mean. We were taught conjugation, the various tenses and their proper use, and, and those helped us to, to have some basic reading comprehension, maybe to write a, a few sentences, or maybe even to, to give a, a short oral report. But we never li- really learned to have an actual conversation. And I wonder if your experience with the Bible has ever felt similar. Just memorize these verses, remember these stories, follow these rules, and you'll pass the test. These are the answers. This is not a place to bring your questions. This is the the, the view of the Bible as textbook. Or maybe you've developed a resistance to the Bible, largely due to to, to pastors and public figures who who wield it with a transparently self-serving agenda, or maybe with an arrogant insistence that their interpretation of fill-in-the-blank is the sole faithful interpretation or interpretive tradition, how things are to be done, who is to be in charge, men is usually their answer to that question, who belongs and who doesn't. This is the Bible as human instruction manual. Now, tellingly, these interpretations have historically most benefited the people and the groups who have often granted themselves the authority to interpret. There could be some correlation there, but I digress. Point being, we mistake vocabulary for fluency. When the reality is is that the the words themselves and even our comprehension of them are meaningless if we're unable to have a conversation. I read the instructions outside the room. I translated and interpreted them myself. I know what to expect in this room and I know what I am to do in this room until suddenly there's another human being in front of me and silencio. So my hope is that today we would all depart from this place with with a a genuine, renewed desire to re-engage with the beauty of a book that we often tend to resist, pastors too. Maybe because we don't know where to start, or we find it elusive and impenetrable as we read alone and struggle to make sense of things, let alone to make it a regular habit. Or we've begun to question the various lenses through which we were taught to read scriptures in the first place. And so maybe today, together, we can set aside the book that has been used to sow such division and judgment and condemnation. We can set down the the book that has become within so many circles, particularly of Western Christianity, an idol unto itself. And then to pick up 
the same book, which charts the still unfolding narrative of creation and destruction and resurrection and the, the assured hope of new creation. This is the grand drama of human brokenness into which God's self is personally immersed. It's the healing love that, that continues to reach out through space and time as we read the same words today. Or, or to borrow some of the, the parable language that's been framing our larger conversation in this season, let us ask together if we need a new wineskin for this book to allow it to breathe anew, that, that, that we might in turn develop a fresh appreciation and love for the written word, which points us toward the living word. Okay? And I say book from the start because I, I need to name that it's an insufficient descriptor. So you may have heard it said that the Bible is, is less a, a single book than it is a, a volume. It's a library featuring this broad array of literary styles, legal codes, and, and historical narrative, chronology, genealogy, poetry, the Psalms, or even Genesis in certain interpretations, the, the wisdom literature, the Gospels as biography, each have their own stylistic character and distinct audience, the epistles, the letters, the, the, the apocalyptic visions, these writings, or oftentimes the, the, the captured dictation from the oral tradition, they, they cannot be interpreted in the same way as one another because they're not only different in content, they are different in basic form and function. And so now we have this, this, this ancient collection of books that have been chosen, that have been compiled into an agreed upon volume, edited, edited again by, by a group of humans. Where do we start? It's already a daunting task. And it's made all the more difficult by another modifier, which has been, in my mind, damagingly applied to our collective understanding of Scripture. And that word is inerrant, and sometimes used interchangeably with infallible. Now, biblical inerrancy being defined as the belief that the Bible is without error in its construction and in anything it states, whether in regard to moral spiritual matters or in declaring the literal timing of the creation of the cosmos. The problem with inerrancy is that it depends on this kind of assumption that the Holy Spirit, in, in essence, not only hijacked the minds and bodies of each and every one of the biblical writers, possessing their hands so that not one letter would fall out of place, but by that logic would also have had to subsequently puppet the various biblical councils to choose these books and not those as they established the final canon, not to mention any other room in which the Bible has been subsequently retranslated and redistributed. My friends in Corinth, this is your friend Paul. The craziest thing happened. I just sort of blacked out. And when I woke up, when I snapped to, I had this letter to address to you guys. Here it is. It is perfect and inerrant. So inerrancy ultimately means that the Bible in its final form might just as well have fallen out of the sky. Why use human beings at all? So when Paul wrote many of the epistles, and there continues to be debate over the authorship of several of his letters, that's a whole other 
can of worms. But when Paul wrote the epistles, he did so as a friend and as a teacher, familiar with these communities and their particular needs and their struggles and their tensions and their personalities, writing to continue encouraging and shaping their embodiment of the life of Christ. It had nothing to do with the Bible as we know it today. In his second letter to Timothy, the Apostle Paul, or, or one of his companions writing under his name and in his style, is warning this young disciple and pastor, a leader in this new way, of, of the, the distressing times to come, urging him not to be deceived, not to lose persistence in the faces of the challenges that lay ahead. And he writes, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have had sacred, you have known sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. But neither Timothy nor the writer has what we call the New Testament in mind, quite simply because it did not exist. The writer is saying that we all know And we've all heard the old stories of exile and rescue, the prophecies now fulfilled through the Messiah, through the, now now, now the Messiah, through whom the old stories are now to be read, interpreted, applied. Jesus is our new interpretive lens. Do not throw away everything that you've, you've learned from the shared practices of tradition. Don't throw away everything you've learned from the breakthroughs of science and human reason or the intuition gained by hard-lived experience or the vitality of community and relationships, but rather now view them all through the prism of Christ, right? And he goes on with a phrase ironically often used as an argument for inerrancy. He says, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the person of God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. Two problems there. One, inerrancy and inspiration are not necessarily synonymous. The root word for inspiration is is God-breathed. No doubt, filling the writers with presence and clarity as they reported upon aspects of their very human encounters with one another and with the divine. Two, the bracketed words there are not in the original Greek at all. And the sentence sounds quite a bit different when read, every scripture inspired by God is also useful for teaching, correction, and training in righteousness. And this alternate reading suggests just at least the faint possibility that certain scriptures may quite reasonably be less inspired and thereby less helpful for the purposes of teaching correction and training in righteousness. The the Beatitudes, for instance, we heard earlier, tell us far more about the character of God and the forming of, of our rebellious hearts than does a timeline of of ancient rulers, the aching angst of the Psalms of Lament far more revelatory than than knowing precisely how many cubits the temple measured, 
The washing of feet and the breaking of bread in the upper room is more declarative of the sacrificial practice to which we are called than pages upon pages of Levitical law. Now, but hear me clearly. I, what I'm not trying to do is, is poke holes in the Bible in the way that it has been taught many of us. The Bible doesn't need defending. The Bible is not perfect because it is flawless. It is perfect precisely because the human flaws in its creation, in its interpretation, in its application, continue to draw us back to these stories over and over again, each time we hope with greater humility than before. The Bible does not cease to be the inspired word of God because it speaks through a diversity of voices. It is the inspired word of God precisely because it speaks through a diversity of voices in a diversity of styles delivered to diverse people groups occupying a diversity of contexts just as the Holy Spirit continues to lead us in faithful interpretations within the complexity of those contexts that we inhabit today. It is perfect in its absurdity and its violence and its paradox because it speaks prophetically, continues to speak prophetically to a world that is so often absurd and violent and paradoxical. Inerrancy was never the point. The, script, the, the scripture never makes those claims upon itself. The overarching narrative of God's liberating movement to all of creation is not about inerrancy. It's about intimacy. To return to the garden. Recall Jesus chiding the religious hypocrites. You, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they who testify on my behalf, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. And so in the summer of 2006, I was briefly under the, we're going to call it, involuntary supervision of Travis County, Texas. Now, the extended season prior to that point is not one I look back to with great fondness. When I, I look back at all, if you want to know more, buy me a coffee. Thankfully, earlier that summer, I had reconnected with a good friend. I, I did not know that she would be my wife two and a half years later. Um, that came after. Uh, she was a friend, and she saw that I was in a tough spot. And as I prepared to go uh, serve my, my few days, she, she gave me this piece of scripture from the book of Lamentations. Now, now at this point, I am a thousand percent sure that I had never read the Book of Lamentations, nor could I have found the Book of Lamentations if asked. I just knew that a friend thought it would be meaningful. And so I read it over and over again. And it became, by accident, the first scripture that I ever memorized, which was entirely beside the point. But it was my engagement of, of this intimate connection with this God that I had been very distant from in, in that season. And I read these words, it's right for one to bear the yoke in youth, to sit alone in silence when the Lord has imposed it, to put one's mouth to the dust as there may yet be hope, to offer one's cheek to the smiter and be filled with every insult. For the Lord 
does not reject forever. Although he causes grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not willingly afflict or grieve anyone. And I read it over and over again. And then I started to read the words around it. It immediately follows this beautiful reminder of grace just a few verses prior. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. And I kept reading. And I really sat for the first time with the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ. And the path ahead started to feel less dark, less scary. Not all at once. There remains a, a work in progress. Progress, not perfection. And then I read ahead to the book of Acts and, and the rushing fire of the Holy Spirit illuminating the heads of all those gathered on Pentecost, speaking in their own language, declaring the goodness of God showing up to them within their unique stories and speaking through their unique tongues now unified, declaring this is my new temple, that this story will continue to be told in the collective, in the echoes and the generations. And so to my people, I will give them these gathered stories to remind them that I am with them. Not so that they would memorize facts and levy judgment towards others, but so that they would become fluent in the new and universal tongue, which is love. Maybe then, one day, they'll even learn to have a conversation. And friends, this is like part one at this point, because I had a whole other topic I intended to cover. So know that we'll be coming back to this very, very soon. Bible, part two, the reckoning. Um, specifically reckoning with the ways that the Bible has been so harmfully wielded as a weapon toward others. Uh, incredibly important topic. We don't have to cover it all right away. Um, thank God. But as for today and, and this week, maybe it's enough to reflect on our own journeys and to continue this conversation as we, as we continue gathering to, together. What was my early experience with the Bible? What is my relationship with it now? And what happens between those two realities? I think that that would give us a tremendous amount to talk uh, about as we gather uh, both next week and just continuing on um, as, as a family. And I'm so grateful for you all. And so as we prepare to receive communion, may the living word inspire us anew today to embody the life of Jesus as, as we anticipate, as we work diligently toward the inbreaking of the kingdom, that it may indeed one day be on earth as it is in heaven. Thanks be